Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. How's it going? Good. Welcome back from our break. Happy 2019. Happy 2019. Oh, January's over. What uh-huh. a long month. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I had a New Year's resolution to have more fun. Ooh, how's that going? Not great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any specific goals attached to having more fun or is it just a general like one? It was more kind fun? of a general, but also like a monthly date night and a few things like that. Um, yeah. So my son got RSV for about that's fun a week. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Thankfully, it was not serious, but he did miss a week of daycare. We were like oh, my husband and I hard. were just juggling him and work for a solid week and then when we when we did finally schedule our date day, we my mom kept the baby. We were going to go to lunch, and then we were going to go look at um, some decorations for his upcoming first birthday party. Oh, my goodness. That uh, is so fast. I know. And then um, so we were having a nice day, and then Pat got food poisoning. <laughs> so oh, come on, universe. He was sick for like four or five days. Oh, no. So- I know. That's awful. So actually, I'm so just sorry. ready to put January in the books. Let's move on. You have 11 more months for fun, for possible fun. Yeah, exactly. We so. can we can rebound. What about you? My resolution or intention, I guess, is maybe a nicer way of saying resolution, is uh, the word release. I know sometimes you pick a word of the year and mine is release. Yeah. So that's physical release, including I just started physical therapy for back pain I've been having since I got pregnant five years ago. Oh, gosh. So literal release in the body, but also just trying to let go of perfectionism and um, all of those habits of clinging to things. And as you might imagine, for somebody like me, um, I can make an exercise and release all about holding on for dear life. So it's a daily (laughs) struggle. But um, I think, you know, anything like this just takes time. And it's, it's kind of a like a meditation when your mind goes off and you're like, okay, come back. I'm like, release, remember, Mm -hmm. release. And it's a gentle word. So I'm glad I picked it. But um, I definitely have not. I need more time. I'm glad I have 11 more months to try to integrate it more into daily life. Yes, me too. All (laughs) right. So here's to the next 11 months. (laughs) Fun and release. Here we go. Okay. If you want to support our conversations like this and the, the podcast, we would love for you to become a patron over on our Patreon page. So you go to patreon.com slash kindreds to sign up and you can start with as little as a dollar a month and every contribution is welcome and appreciated. Yes. Welcome and appreciated. Yeah. And thanks to all of our patrons who've been supporting us over the last year. Yeah. So today we are talking about white feminism. Yeah, white feminism. Just a light topic. You know, that's how we that's how we roll. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so what the heck is white feminism? Um and before you lose your stuff over this cuz yeah, we're talking about we're talking about white folks. Um mm-hmm. when we mean when we use the term white feminism, we're talking about the collective movement, not necessarily about individual people. However, if you are like Ashley and me and you identify as white and you consider yourself a feminist, we would encourage you and we encourage ourselves to recognize how these problematic patterns and how we speak and act and participate in the world as a feminist. So 
what is white feminism? Why is it a problem? And then we'll share some concrete ways to learn more about it and to become better allies. So we want a few a few disclaimers. I'm going to hand it over to Ashley. Yeah, before we get really into it, um, we just want to make a couple of things clear. Katie and I are not anti-racist educators. We are just a couple of cis white women who are learning about racism and white privilege within ourselves and within the groups that we're part of, like um, our professional spaces, our religious spaces. And that's what we're sharing here on our podcast. We highly encourage white people listening to this today to seek out and pay for the work of people of color that are doing this work. And we're going to list some resources toward the end of the episode for you to do that. And something we just want to say, even if this, uh, if these concepts that we're talking about today, even if they're new to you, new to us, they're not new. <laughs> um, people of color have been talking about and educating on these concepts for a really long time. So if you're new to these ideas and these conversations, the best place to start is by stepping back and listening. Yes, you'll probably hear that phrase again today. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about listening, shutting up and listening. As we talk, but <laughs> yeah, as we, we talk. also need to listen as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Katie, when did you first understand that your feminism was white? The first time that I had a recognition that my feminism was exclusive of black women specifically was in a class that I took my senior year of college on black theology. And we read a book that has stayed with me ever since that I reference all the time. And that is Dolores Williams, Sisters in the Wilderness. It is a fantastic theological look at the story of Sarai and Hagar in the book of Genesis. Um, you might not mm -hmm. know the story. Um, if you want to learn more about the story, pick up Sisters in the Wilderness, or you can download a uh, the first chapter of my book where I talk about the story over at katiezay.com slash women rise up. But essentially the, the story is about Sarai, um, Abram and Hagar and Sarai is um, first sold into slavery herself into sexual slavery by her husband. And then in return, um, Abram, her husband is granted a number of slaves, including Hagar, who is from Egypt and Sarai who cannot get pregnant forces Hagar um, to she's raped by Abram and becomes pregnant um, and so Sarai sends Hagar out into the wilderness to die. And, and Dolores Williams in the book compares the journey of Hagar to the journey of African-American women from the time of slavery to current day, about how African-American women are surrogates to white women in lots of different ways. And it's a fantastic mm -hmm. book. And it was the first book I read that was a theological book written by a black woman about the black woman's experience. And I remember thinking like, yep, I'm Sarai in the story. You know, that's my mm -hmm. role and seeing that as we can't, I can no longer claim, you know, womanhood without thinking about race. Now that was just the first inclination. I've had many others, but that was, that was for me a real pivotal moment where it, it sunk in in a way that I could hear it at the time. And I credit Dolores Williams, amazing academic work, but also the spirit for um, leading me to truth at that time. What about you? What's the process been like of understanding your feminism as, as white? I think it's so cool that you have a like 
a moment that you can look back to. It's like, this was the thing that opened my eyes. I don't necessarily have that. For me, it was more um, just a slow and kind of gradual awakening, taking in more and more about racism and white supremacy and um, just kind of opening myself up to more books and media by people of color and and hearing what they were saying more and more and it was it was kind of a snowball effect like Mm -hmm. the more I took in the more I realized I still didn't know Mm -hmm. and so I just sort of feel like a a, on like I'm on the journey and I can't really tell you when it started necessarily but it's uh it's just been something that's maybe been with me for a while now and I just continue to work on it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and we will for the rest of our lives. Yeah. We'll continue to work on it. Same. Yeah. And I'll just say, even though I had a moment of where something became clear that had not been made clear, I'm still on that journey that you're on. Just, I had a little catapult moment <laughs> that got me there Yeah, <laughs> to a place of recognition of like, oh, wow, I really need to be learning more about this and recognizing it. So I've by no means arrived. That's for sure. Yeah, and that's something that I hope we can make clear through the through this episode that this there's not really an end point to this. There's not a moment where a a white person can really be like, "I am I have fixed it. <laughs> right. I have solved racism within myself." <laughs> I am, you know, like it's just it, there's not a there's not an end game for this. It's just a, a an awareness and a, and an acceptance that this is our place in a white supremacist culture mm-hmm. and um that this is the work that we have to dedicate our lives to. But I feel like we're jumping ahead. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Katie, what is white feminism? I was looking up some resources because there are a lot of articles and things that give good definitions about what white feminism is. But one resource I thought was really useful and we'll link to is a video that Huffington Post created back in 2015 uh, why we need to talk about white feminism. I think it's only two or three minutes. Uh, it's worth yeah, it's watching. Mm-hmm. And the two women who created it, um, one is Ziba Blay, the senior cultural writer at Huffington Post, and Emma Gray. I love that their names rhyme. They rhyme with Katie mm-hmm. Uh senior women's reporter at the Huffington Post. And they're they're still there. I was surprised to look. They're, they're still at the Huffington Post. They've got a good thing going. And they go over three main points about what fi- what white feminism is. And we will walk through these three things and, and others. But so first is white feminism is feminism that ignores intersectionality. I will define that in just a minute. Point two, white feminism assumes the way white women experience misogyny or the hatred of women is the way that all women experience misogyny. And three, white feminism excludes the experiences of basically anyone who is not white, cis, and straight. And I would add in able-bodied, um, mm-hmm. documented, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that's yeah. in the dominant culture. Um, mm-hmm. So point one, let's talk about white feminism is feminism that ignores intersectionality. And this might be a term that you've heard before, but just for some background, it's a term coined by Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's now a professor at Columbia Law School, and she came up with this term about 30 years ago in a paper entitled, and I'll take a breath, Demarginalizing the Intersections of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. And (laughs) (laughs) Mouthful. The paper, well, it's just such an academic title, but, um, but she actually commented on this recently about 
how she thinks about intersectionality or a way to talk about it now, which is very much in alignment with what she said then, but I thought this was a little bit easier to digest. Mm-hmm. And she said, intersectionality is a lens through which you can see where power comes and collides, where it interlocks and intersects. It's not simply that there's a race problem here, a gender problem here, and a class or LGBTQ problem there. Many times that framework erases what happens to people who are subject to all of these things. So yes. we're talking about folks who have multiple identities in which they're being oppressed for having that identity and how those um, collide or create additional oppression because of those intersections where people live. So when we talk about white feminism, we're talking about a political and cultural agenda that's centered around those of us who experience oppression solely based on our gender identity, not our race, not our religion, not our sexuality, not our economic status, not our ability, not our immigration status, or just our gender alone. And um, when we center our our needs, there are a lot of people who get excluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are the folks experiencing the most severe forms of oppression and discrimination. So we're talking about trans women of color who are being beaten up and murdered. We're talking about queer Muslim women of color. We're talking about poor women, immigrant women, and women with disabilities who are experiencing things beyond just their gender that's oppressing them. So that's intersectionality. Thanks. That's a that's a I feel like a good definition um, to start with. It's thanks, um, Kimberly Crenshaw. Yeah, she's thank amazing. You. <laughs> she. I recently watched a TED talk that she gave as well. That was really good. So we'll include oh, that. Yeah, let's link that. The show notes for this episode are going to be um, pretty packed. So um, hopefully we can make them helpful to people that are like, you're saying a lot of people that I've never heard of. You're saying a lot of resources and things to read and watch and where, you know, slow down. We're going to we're going to make sure that we put all of this in the show notes for you. Absolutely. So point two, white feminism assumes that the way white women experience misogyny is the way that all women experience misogyny. What this basically means is White women definitely experience sexism and misogyny, but women of color often experience that misogyny with a layer of racism on it. Like there's often not a way to separate the misogyny that that a person of color is experiencing as separate from the racialized component of that. And there's even a term for this coined by um, academic Moya Bailey, when a black woman faces the particular form uh, of hatred um, that is directed specifically at black women. So this term is misogynoir, which I think is a really helpful word when you just need an example of how misogyny is different for people who are not white. So I was thinking about, we love Serena Williams on this podcast. (laughs) She's been our kindreds of the moment at least once. I know. We talk about her a lot. Something happened with her last year that I think makes a really good uh, illustration of how the misogyny that she faces, you cannot separate it from the racism that she faces. So if you were paying attention last year at the um, 2018 U.S. Women's Final, the U.S. Open, what happened briefly is... Her coach was giving her hand signals from the sidelines, which is not allowed, but everybody does it, apparently. It's the kind of thing that you get you usually get a warning for it. Mm-hmm. Well, she got a penalty. The umpire called a penalty on her, and he accused her of cheating, and that made her mad. And yeah. So, yeah. You're Serena Williams. <laughs> yes. She said, 
I'd rather lose than cheat. Like the audience and stuff could hear this going on. And she basically called him a liar and a thief. And she asked, she demanded an apology. You need to say you're sorry. I am not a cheater. And she never used profanity like a lot of men do, uh, male tennis players do when they're yelling at the umpires. They swear in their, in multiple languages. Because <laughs> it's an international <laughs> sport, you know. But he gave her an even more severe penalty that basically cost her the game just for getting mad, basically. Right. And it cost her the game, but it also cost her opponent, Naomi Osaka, who is also a great tennis player, cost her a fair win. I mean, she won, mm-hmm. but it wasn't it was because of the penalties. It wasn't because she she won it fair and square. And so both of these women were penalized for this umpire basically punishing Serena Williams for getting mad. And there are tons of instances where men have yelled at this particular umpire where they've been giving a soft warning or they haven't been penalized at all. Mm -hmm. So that happened. There's a lot of tennis players who have stepped up since then and said, if she had been a white woman or if she had been a man, she would not have received these penalties. Mm -hmm. So you have that. But then after the game, an Australian cartoonist drew a cartoon of the game of her throwing a temper tantrum, and he drew her using the most cliched, historic, racist imagery (laughs) to depict her. And then he drew Naomi Osaka as a white woman (laughs) with a blonde ponytail, which she is not. She is Haitian Japanese, woman of color. And so it just racialized the whole thing. And so in learning a little more about, you know, this incident and putting it in a context of like her career, Serena Williams is also tested more heavily for drugs than any other tennis player. And she gets criticized about her body in a way that white women don't. Mm -hmm. Just being um, too masculine or, I mean, the, the words that people use to describe her body are often racialized as well as sexist. And I don't know if you remember that awesome catsuit she wore in the French Open last year. Yeah. As soon as that game was over, the French Open banned catsuits because of of her and her body and the way she wore it. And they called it disrespectful to the game. I mean, tennis is this whole, like, elitist world anyway. But, like, there's layers of racism to the way that Serena Williams is treated as a not just as a woman but as a black woman that Mm -hmm. white women just do not have to deal with Mm -hmm. and so when we center like the way that we experience sexism is the way all women experience sexism we just erase all of the ways that women of color all, all of the misogyny that's directed at them that is also racist as a white woman, I might say, yeah, that's, they shouldn't have done that and kind of move on. But it's so symbolic of so mm-hmm. many deeper things about how um, black women's anger is not acceptable mm-hmm. uh, or seen as threatening, how beauty standards are defined by, by white women. And mm-hmm. so a black woman's body doesn't always look like a white woman's body. Therefore, it just, its existence is offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the kind of, all of this to me is saying like, Tennis as an institution, as an elitist white male institution is like, Serena, comply or get out. Yeah. Right? It's like comply and adhere 
and um, become like us or or you're out. And she's just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> she refuses to back down. <laughs> she is the greatest tennis player that has ever lived. And she is constantly having to prove herself more. <laughs> and it's just a really, um, like watching it is just, yeah. Yeah. And the whitewashing of the of her opponent, who's mm-hmm. Haitian Japanese, you said? Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think like maybe dyes her hair light or something. I kind of remember. No? She's definitely not blonde in the She's game. She's not blonde. In that game. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like whitewashing her I- racial identity and, and having her play the, the role of the of the like demure white woman mm-hmm. is also really problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one of those things that when you start to see it, you start to see it everywhere. Right. And so, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, like the idea of why does everything have to be about race? Oh, because it is. I mean. This, yeah, exactly. Like why everything has to be about gender? Because it is. It is. And yes. when once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so then it becomes, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And um, that is, you know, hopefully we'll talk about some things because once you see it, it's takes some processing of like, how did we get here? And how do, what's my role in it? And then it becomes, okay, now we process, but we also act. So, um, that's right. Yeah. Do you want, should we talk about point three? Let's do it. Let's keep it rolling. Yeah. All right. So white feminism excludes the experiences of basically anyone who is not white, cis, and straight. So that's point three. And I see this the most when cis white women claim to speak on behalf of all women. And I see this Mm -hmm. all the time. I see this a lot in politics. Oh, there's been some serious white girl action happening right now with these uh, presidential uh, runs being announced. Yeah. Is there anything uh, in particular? In general, I think when white women are claiming their candidacy and talking about, you know, when women got the vote. Actually, I think this might have been something Nancy Pelosi said on her first day. Mm -hmm. When women got the vote, it's like, which women are we talking about? Right. Yeah. So just those examples of, of claiming victories for women without an understanding of the racial impact of that and that we're really not talking about. You are not talking about all women when you say that. Yeah. So I'll just leave it at that. Yep. I think that's a really good example. And, you know, yes. Hillary Clinton had a real blind spot for this stuff, too. Her brand of feminism was often white feminism. And it's really hard, you know, as a as a white woman who voted for her it's really hard sometimes to just acknowledge that and the problems with our our candidates that we lift up as examples. It can be really difficult to acknowledge their shortcomings um, when it comes to race. We really want to emphasize that when we when white women dominate the conversation um, with our experiences, it erases the differences in our experiences that people of color have and makes it even harder for other people to be heard. We just take mm-hmm. up all the conversation. We take up all the space. So the most important thing that any white feminist can do is to educate herself, listen, and engage with the experiences of women of color without silencing them. Because sometimes as white ladies, we just have to shut up. <laughs> And that's a quote from the video. Yeah. <laughs> that's the last Actually, line of the video. They say shut up. And they use up. an expletive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is true. But yeah. we don't swear on yeah. this podcast, unfortunately. Yeah. So I wanted to lift up and name some things that we do as white women that are 
Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional. And we really, maybe we should talk about the difference between intent versus impact here. Just because our intentions are good, if we hurt somebody, if our impact was bad, we've got to own it. And um, saying, well, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to. That wasn't my intention. Mm -hmm. It's not good enough. So um, here's some things that we do where our intentions are often, (laughs) we've got it. Maybe our intentions are good. Maybe they're just um, willfully (laughs) ignorant. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> they're coping strategies. Yeah, yeah. But these are some things that happen. Um, this happens a lot online, too. So you might see some of these things. We're going to make some examples of um, some things we've seen online. But you can kind of connect where you see it online and you see it happen in real life in a real conversation. So the first thing is called tone policing. This is when a person of color is expressing emotion, like anger or even just speaking in a direct way that isn't kind of like dancing around your feelings or whatever a white person often will jump in to say something like well if you just wouldn't be so aggressive or if if she would just say that a little nicer maybe she could get her point across better or maybe people will listen an example of this if your first thought about serena williams was to say well she shouldn't have lost her temper at that umpire she shouldn't have gotten mad she wouldn't have gotten that penalty that is basically in essence what tone policing is it's telling Mm -hmm. someone that their feelings the way they are expressing them are wrong or inappropriate Uh or the cause of their oppression to begin with yes exactly instead of actually listening to the words they're saying Another thing that we do as white women is called gaslighting. This one you might be a little more familiar with because it comes up all the time. It's kind of a buzzword right now. Yeah, it is kind of a buzzword. And it comes from the movie Gaslight, um, if you're not familiar, where basically the main character is made to believe that she's crazy when she's not. So this word is used a lot around um, sexual harassment or sexual assault. For instance, when a woman reports being sexually harassed, it's not uncommon for someone to say, are you sure you're not just reading too much into it? He, he probably wasn't trying to make you uncomfortable. You're just being too sensitive. Or, you know, are you sure he's, he meant he said it that way? And this makes you question your own experience. Well, maybe he, maybe he didn't mean it like that. Maybe I just misinterpreted. I don't know. And so all what that does is it stifles the people from reporting or for speaking out and naming something what it is. So Apply that same idea to when a woman of color says she just experienced something racist. The first thing a white person jumps in to say, well, that wasn't racist. You're just reading too much into it. Or why do you have to make everything about race? It wasn't about Mm -hmm. race. This was about you as an individual or whatever. If you've Mm -hmm. ever been on the receiving end of this, you know how crazy it can make you feel and how frustrating it is to have someone say to you, That thing you say happened to you didn't happen or it didn't happen the way you're saying it. You don't know your own experience. Gaslighting is a really terrible and destructive thing to do. Especially when someone is being vulnerable, even if it's out of necessity, I just have to tell you what happened to me. But the person is sharing something that's painful. And rather Mm -hmm. than listening, um, that's... That would be me deflecting from the Mm -hmm. emotion and trying to cover it up or say it's just an issue that you're having instead of really having compassion for the pain and thinking about how I can help rectify the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, really, really problematic. 
Another one that white women like to do is, have you heard or seen hashtag like white girl tears? Yes. <laughs> so this is when um, we're call- like, if I'm called out on something I did that's um, insensitive or racist, and then I start to cry about it or start talking, it doesn't have to be literal tears. Um, I can just say, oh, oh my gosh, I feel so guilty. I'm learning about the history of slavery in this country. I just feel so guilty as a white woman. Like, I don't know what to do with all of this. Um, that's what we call white fragility. Mm-hmm. And this is a term coined by Robin D'Angelo, who is a white woman who's done a lot of writing, academic work and writing about, um, about whiteness. And we'll talk more about her stuff in a second. Uh, so you might have seen hashtags like not all white people or hashtag I'm not racist. Uh, it's being so emotional about my own wrongdoing or guilt uh, that I've hurt somebody else mm-hmm. that the focus becomes about my feelings of shame and guilt instead of the pain and the harm that I've caused mm-hmm. somebody else. And it's a real fail- personal failure on my end to see that I'm participating and benefiting from white supremacy because White people want to see, we want to see ourselves as good, mm-hmm. right? We want to see ourselves as not racist. Like, I have a black friend. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, every single one of us is part of a system of white supremacy that benefits me and harms other people. So this is, I would almost say kind of parallel or like the flip side of gaslighting, which is gaslighting seems like it's all about you and like you need to figure out what's making you feel uncomfortable and and the white fragility piece is like I'm turning again from your emotions, but now I'm making it about myself, and I'm mm-hmm. making it an internal thing for me, and like I feel so bad. And um, we were talking before we started recording, and a, a helpful conversation about this could be our apology episode, where we talk about how to apologize properly. I can't remember the number, but we'll link to it in the show notes. Just yeah. thinking about how you apologize when you've hurt someone, regardless of what you think about it. Like, take the person's pain seriously. If you need to cry about it, find your white friend later and cry about it. Yeah. But <laughs> not in front of the person <laughs> who is actually harmed and yeah, hurt. Yeah, because then of you're asking you them to take care of your feelings about it and just – That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about about white women, like this is – you know, when white women cry, the focus becomes about them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter the situation. Like there's some the, – because we, we – the sexism for white women is we're seen as fragile – and mm-hmm. we benefit from that in these situations when we cry and we show, um, you know, quote unquote weakness. The focus then becomes about like the white woman's so fragile, we need to take care of her. And it is a form of like passive aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. The last one we're going to talk about, there's a, there's a lot. <laughs> so we're going to give you some more resources. But the last we're going to focus on, I wanted, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Um, because it's something I've seen before, but didn't have a name for until recently. And I learned mm-hmm. the name spiritual bypassing. I saw oh, this. Oh, I don't on, know this term. Yeah. So I saw this on Rachel Cargill's Instagram. You've mentioned her before as mm-hmm. a kindred of the moment a few episodes ago. She is somebody that does anti-racism work. Uh, she's a she's a black woman, and she has a webinar that she does on unpack I believe it's called unpacking white privilege we will link to that as well but she talks very directly on her Instagram Um, some of her posts will call out um, forms of racism that she's experiencing at the hands of white women a lot of times other you know women who are calling themselves feminists and she has pointed out this this thing that we do called spiritual bypassing 
And it's when we use spirituality to avoid dealing with a difficult emotion. So this is good. Yeah. (laughs) And I would love to dig into this more maybe in another episode. I feel like there's a lot to cover with this. But I I thought maybe our audience would be particularly interested um, in just what this means. The way this plays out is when a white person says something dismissive using like spiritual or even like pop psychology type language um, where they say maybe the problem is that everyone is just so divisive. If we could all just focus on love and light, there would be peace on earth. (laughs) (laughs) It's so simple. It's just so simple. Um, Or offering thoughts and prayers, you know, in the wake of a tragedy. If you're using words like peace, healing energy, love and light, or harmony to shut down difficult conversations about race or power or justice, then that is actually using spirituality to harm people. So um, something I thought fits this on Rachel Cargill's Instagram, she she sometimes, if somebody posts a comment in her comment section, she'll sometimes screenshot it and make it her next post and show just how like... <laughs> ignorant and harmful it was so one of the things that she's been pointing out is when people are calling her aggressive so they're saying but Rachel you being so aggressive with your work is simply you using the same hate that you're trying to fight against and people in the comment section will say you have to fight hate with love you can't fight hate with anger that's both tone policing you know you're being so aggressive and spiritual bypassing, saying you can't fight hate with hate. You know, we all just need to to use love to fight hate. And something that this has really, something that Rachel Cargill has named is that anger does not equal hate. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about anger as a healthy emotion, but how we also um, grew up hearing about anger in the church. In so, the white church. In white church, yes. So I grew up hearing that there were times in Jesus's life that he got angry at the injustice and suffering that he saw and that that means that anger is appropriate, especially righteous anger. Like it was always talked about in the, in the form of righteous anger at oppression and suffering. And so I wanted to find an example of this because I've always thought about like when Jesus turned over the tables of the tax collectors in the temple, but that's not the only Example. So I want to read just a quick passage, Mark 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. <laughs> so, Some note. <laughs> some note. The plot thickens. I know. Mark 3 is a story of Jesus showing us that unjust laws are meant to be questioned. They're meant to be challenged and broken. And that anger is a totally human and righteous response when we witness injustice happening. And especially, this is the part that the the passage specifically says, he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Being angry, especially when we see people ignoring 
tone policing, spiritually bypassing, gaslighting, the suffering of others is natural, human, and appropriate. Silencing or dismissing the anger of a person of color is a way of saying we'd rather have harmony or the appearance of harmony than justice. And so I feel Mm -hmm. like it's important to take a minute to just acknowledge that anger is real appropriate (laughs) and that it makes sense. (laughs) And so shying away from anger, trying to silence anger is just harming the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about the passage that you read and what the different sources of the anger are in mm-hmm. that story. So there's there's anger at the silence mm-hmm. when they refuse to answer the question. There's probably anger in the setup that they would be using a man who needed healing as a prop mm-hmm. for their plot to trap entrap Jesus, you know, for for doing good, for doing healing work. Like there's a lot in that situation, I think where his you could say are his sources of anger. Mm-hmm. Um the complicity Mm-hmm. in the system that would lead to additional suffering for this the man. rigid adherence to a law over mm-hmm. that too yeah like it, yeah it, ignoring the failure him. to be prophetic and speak up yeah for, mm-hmm. for someone suffering mm-hmm. i wanted to share one other form of spiritual bypassing or maybe it's just because it's recent but i think when white when we white people pull quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. out uh, and and share them without context. To me, it's similar to pulling biblical texts out of the Bible without a context for where they came from and using yep. them um, to make ourselves feel good, to, um, to speak against someone like Rachel Cargill who's being prophetic and say, hey, well, MLK said this, so why don't you practice it? The other thing too, and you already said this, that anger does not equal hate. I think of, of hate as an internal, um, state of being about mm-hmm. the way I feel about somebody else, but an expression of anger doesn't, like you said, it doesn't mean that I hate. So we can't, we can't know if someone hates someone or not, right? Like it's an internal state of how I think and feel, mm-hmm. uh, about another person and it's detrimental to my own well-being, but it's, mm-hmm. I mean, you could say that an expression is is hate-filled or something like that. But I think hatred is very much an internal state and not an external one. Uh, And I agree with you that anger, to me, is an energetic emotion Mm -hmm. that, when channeled properly and thoughtfully, can lead to tremendous change for Mm -hmm. the good. And Mm -hmm. we shouldn't shy away from it. And as you were talking... And I know you listened to this, too. uh, There was a great episode of Call Your Girlfriend podcast yes. where they talked about the the recent um splintering may I, I'm not sure the, the different movements within the women's march organization and mm-hmm. they had received a letter from a listener who one was like how dare you not um have addressed this already and they were like excuse me this is our platform we talk about what we want <laughs> yes but but also that they should take upon themselves to call for like quote unquote unity or harmony as you were talking about mm-hmm. And um, they did such a great job of going through the history of feminist movements, including the second wave feminists uh, from the 60s and 70s, talking about the the different um, 
points of contention within the women's march movement or or organization i should say mm-hmm. including the taking really seriously the role of anti-semitism that's mm-hmm. been happening there um but they also take on the whole concept of this unity for the greater good which i think you absolutely have already covered with the spiritual bypassing like let's just let's just love each other like it's some simple thing to do and also when who is the person calling for unity and what, who gets to define what the quote unquote greater good is? Mm-hmm. Um, because the greater good is a way of erasing the oppressions of people that you or I don't take seriously or don't think are that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I say, well, okay, they're not being super, the women's march isn't being super clear about how, where it comes on anti-Semitism, but let's talk about the greater good. Like I've just now erased the role of anti-Semitism and the violence and destruction of Jewish people throughout mm-hmm. history. Like that is not for me to say. Uh, so when we call for greater good, um, we're often ignoring and erasing someone else's very real oppression that we should be struggling with and, and working to eradicate. And the other thing that I love that Amina said is, y'all, if this was so easy to deconstruct these systems of oppression, like, wouldn't you be more concerned that we haven't already done it? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> if it's so simple, why haven't we done it? No, this stuff is hard. Yep. Oppression is insidious and it's complex and it sucks and it's going to make you mad. And yes. it's, we're going to fight amongst ourselves. And that is actually a good thing. It doesn't mean that we won't find progress. And she talks about second wave feminists who fought all the time. Yeah. And like <laughs> cried. And yet we still have these advancements, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later in spite of that infighting, like it's good. We need to be struggling to figure this out and we all have our own work to do. So I just love that there was this permission to, um, to struggle and to fight and to have conflict. And that doesn't mean that the movement isn't moving forward. Um, it yeah. just means it's really hard. Yeah. And discomfort is often like the first step on the way to growth, right? Like it's when mm-hmm. we're comfortable and apathetic that we stagnate. And so when we, are growing, we are experiencing discomfort. We are going to make mistakes. We're going to cause harm. We need to acknowledge it and apologize and keep going and not let it make us quit. And there's just – this stuff isn't easy, like you said, or it would have been solved. And so right. the work is the commitment, I think, to the struggle no matter how uncomfortable it makes us and no matter how hard the work is – so, you know, we've we've uh we've taken away a lot of uh tools <laughs> or we we've taken away a lot of a lot of the responses strategies. to <laughs> strategies and things. So we need to we need to put something in its place, right? <laughs> we need to um talk about all right. So now we now we covered what not to do, some of what not to do. Let's talk about some things to do. So what does it mean to be a white feminist ally. Somebody that uh, we encourage you to look up on Instagram and to find online is Layla F. Saad. She's an anti-racism educator. She has a toolkit. It's called the White Supremacy and Me Workbook. We will mention that in a little more detail toward the end of the podcast. But uh, she has a great post. I guess it's a blog post on her website where she's talking. It's a series of... um, about white women and white supremacy. And in the second post, she talks about, so you say you want to be an ally. You say you're here for this work. What does that mean? What are you committing to? When you say yes to this work, what are you committing to? So 
these are just a few things. I'm not going to, it's a lot. So um, I probably won't read them all, but these are some concrete actions of what it, what it means when you commit to being an ally. So constantly educating myself around issues of social justice, intersectional feminism, sacred activism, and conscious leadership, constantly doing the work within myself of identifying how I oppress myself and others, and doing the work of calling myself out when I do harm, whether I meant it or not. Listening to people of color and other marginalized folks when they're taking the time to educate me for free and not telling them how I think they should see things or what I think they should do. Speaking up as often as possible in my personal and professional environments, naming white privilege and oppression when I see it, supporting people of color and other marginalized folks by actually paying for their work. Reading and listening to their work, buying their services and products. If you have a platform of some kind, inviting them into your platform, your summits, your podcasts, your programs, cultivating relationships with people of color that are transformational and not transactional, not treating people of color like a token, building respectful relationships with them of mutual support. This one I think is really interesting. Using my spirituality as a way to engage deeper into this work rather than as a way to bypass this work. And recognizing that being devoted to spirit means being devoted to social justice. Staying in my own lane and using my unique spiritual gifts to show up in sacred activism, whether as a writer, an artist, facilitator, speaker, healer, teacher, or a guide. And then these are some of the, I think, the most critical especially when you're just new to this stuff apologizing when I get it wrong taking accountability for the harm that I've done setting my ego and fragility aside so I can do what's right instead of what's easy not letting guilt or making mistakes get in the way of me continuing to show up and forgiving myself and educating myself so that I can do better next time so Katie do you have any that you would add to this (laughs) That's the work of several lifetimes. And yeah. <laughs> and these all come list. from uh, Layla F. Saad. So no, these are not my own words. I just want to make sure that that is clear. No, those are great. One other I thought of in thinking about being a parent is teaching my kid about racism and talking about race in an honest and open way mm-hmm. and not claiming color blindness mm-hmm. or dismissing racial differences in people. I want her to have the vocabulary and understanding that she needs even at four years old. Yeah. All right, y'all. The work is cut out for us. (laughs) Y'all ready to dive in? (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, should we talk about what we've been reading and listening to? Yes, let's. I have so many things that I want to share, but I'm only going to share one because we've been running long. Mm Mm-hmm. If you all remember Cindy Brandt, she was our great guest on episode 14, where we talked about faith mm-hmm. shifting and parenting. She has created this awesome Facebook community called Unfundamentalist Parenting, which I recommend, uh, even if you're not a parent, it's just a great, thoughtful group of folks talking about what it means to kind of break free of fundamentalist Christian culture. And try to raise a new generation without it. She has a new book out called Parenting Forward, How to Raise Children with Justice, Kindness, and Mercy. Mm. And what I love about this book is that it challenges those of us who are parents or who interact with kids at all 
to really live into our values and ethics and the way that we interact with children and the way that we parent on both a really minutia level and on a much broader level. And she calls us to push back against parenting styles that are power over where we're dominating children and using our, our size and our age and our, and our stature to intimidate children to, to act the way that we want them to and, and to treat them with instead with dignity and the respect that they deserve. And I have to say, I really kind of avoid parenting books because they're such a a magnifying glass on my own parenting. (laughs) And uh, I know that I have, failed many, many times in trying to um, be the kind of parent that Cindy calls us to. And yet I feel like it's something for all of us to read and to consider and to integrate into how we interact with with our little ones, you know, mm-hmm. who are depending on us and who are going to mimic what they see in our relationships and the relationships they have with their peers and eventually with their own children. Um, it's also a really quick read because I know we're busy, especially mm-hmm. if we got little kids, but I read it in just a couple of hours. Um, so huge plus for that if you're looking for something quick and really thorough about how to be um, the kind of parent you want to be. So that's Parenting Forward, How to Raise Children with Justice, Kindness, and Mercy by Cindy Brandt. I love that you brought up Cindy Brandt because I actually got this book idea from that episode. She mentioned having read it and I was like, oh, mental note. So I am reading Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America by Jennifer Harvey. She is a white woman raising kids in a same-sex marriage. And she has done some other writing, one in particular uh, book called Dear White Christians, Mm-hmm. So I think she does this kind of this kind of work in her spaces. Um, what I love about this book is it like like you said about the um, about Cindy Brandt's book, it's kind of putting a magnifying glass on your own parenting. This does the same thing. It's making me examine the way that I was raised to talk about race, which we've covered before. You know, we were both kind of brought up in that colorblind um, s- style of parenting in the in the eighties. And it's giving me concrete things to do and say instead. It's like, so mm-hmm. this happens. Here's what not, here's how not to respond. Here's what to do instead. Um, this, you know, your child says this thing. Here's how to respond or ways mm-hmm. to think about responding. But it also challenges you as a parent to really examine your place in the sort of race conversation, what you're bringing to the table, what baggage you have around it, what work you need to do. Um, and, and really like it's, it's got a lot of practical concrete tips for kids all the way up from like preschool to to teenagers. So, um, I really like it. I'm over halfway through, I'm finding it really helpful. Um, so yeah, that is Raising White Kids by Jennifer Harvey. That is on my reading list. I have not yet read it, so I'm glad to know that it it's full of both the here's what not to do and here's here's alternatively what to do. Because that's when you just tell me what not to do, sometimes yep. it's hard to know <laughs> there's a void. She gives a lot of like real life, like this is a conversation that happened with my daughter or these are conversations that these are memories I have as a kid and the way my teacher handled it and what was problematic about that and what she could have done differently. And so that now I'm thinking about handling it differently with my kids like it's it's really good she's she's pretty um open when about talking about things that have happened in her family and like what they did to address it and even when they made mistakes so yeah I think you're really gonna like it awesome we will link to those in the show notes 
And now it's our final segment of the episode, Concerns of the Moment, which we're going to do a little bit differently today. Normally we pick a person or an organization, but in talking, we just realized there's so many different people engaged in this work. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to share a few of the ones who have been helpful for us, some of whom we've already mentioned in this episode, but want to reiterate how good their work is. It's by no means an exhaustive list. And we would love to hear from you, the people that have been influential or the books that you've read. You can always send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. But um, why don't you take it away and we'll we'll ping pong this one. Yeah. So the first one is Rachel Cargill. Um, I found her on Instagram after Katie lifted her up, I think, as a Kindreds of the Moment before. And I've learned a lot just from her Instagram. She also has a website. We will put the specific website in the show notes. But if you find her on Instagram, you can find where she lives on the internet. And she's got workshops, things you can download, courses. If you live in her area, you can see her speak live. Like she is somebody that is doing some really intensive emotional labor and work Mm -hmm. around all of this for people. So she's the, she's our first suggestion. And then a book that both of us have read Mm -hmm. is the, I'm still here. Um, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Yes. Is that the subtitle? I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just said that off the top of my head. Good job. By Austin, by Austin Channing Brown. And I think that this book is especially useful for social justice, for white social justice activists who work in predominantly white social justice movements mm-hmm. or organizations, yes. especially if they're faith-based. Because um, Austin Channing Brown just walks through exactly what it's like when white organizations say they want diversity and they bring in a black woman or another person of color mm-hmm. and what that experience is actually like for that person um, and the racism that they experience and the ways that quote unquote, like allies, the people who came to them early and said, like, you let me know if something happens. And then they totally gaslight them. I mean, she just walks through over and over again, what that experience was like for her. And um, I-, I found it really eye-opening um, about how this, how white supremacy is so insidious. And even when we have these good intentions, like you were talking about, the racism is still there mm-hmm. and drives these very talented folks out because they're spending all of their energy dealing with your white fragility and your white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That was what stuck out to me the most about that book. I don't know if you want to share no, what that's was most same. impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, really good. When you work in, when you're a white person working in social justice and nonprofit spaces, <laughs> oh boy, you see a lot of this stuff. Um, have you ever watched the show Insecure on HBO? No, Issa Rae's Mm-mm. show. So she works for a white-led nonprofit that does like after-school tutoring for inner-city youth in LA, and the show makes fun of, but also like points out the racism that she experiences being sort of the the token black person in the organization, and just the the micro petty <laughs> racism that happens to her on a daily basis, and. Um, just how exhausting and frustrating it is. But yeah, Austin Channing Brown's book is really good for that. I've mentioned before the Me and White Supremacy Workbook by Layla F. Saad. Um, you can find that on her website. It's free. And here's the thing. We've mentioned this a couple of times throughout the episode. Paying for the work of people of color is absolutely crucial. They Often this work of do especially like anti-racism work for white people, it is 
difficult. It's frustrating. It's emotionally draining. It can often be violent. I mean, there's a lot that people put themselves out there and then get nothing but just like antagonism and racism in return um, from the people who claim to want the education that they're trying to provide, you know, uh-huh. and that work takes its toll on people. And we often as white people expect people of color to just do this work out of the kindness of their hearts or because they're committed to the struggle or because they're, you know, part of a nonprofit culture or a religious culture. We demand this stuff for free all the time. That's got to stop. We've got to start mm-hmm. paying for the work that we're consuming. And so there is an opt. There's a free option to download this workbook. We highly encourage you to make a donation. There's not a, um, a set cost, but you can donate what you can. Please do that. Maybe consider what would I pay for a regular book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like make it meaningful. And I, I think there's also the psychology of, of paying for something hopefully will make it more valuable to you mm-hmm. and you'll take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's most important to be paying people for their work, but also for you to put out a value. This is important enough for me that I'm going to pay for it mm-hmm. and I'm going to take the time to go to work through it. I need to do this. So I'm going to go download it. I do too. Pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> I need to do that. Um, and a white woman that we want to mention, uh, again, is Robin D'Angelo, who coined the term white fragility. She's got a number of books, but she's got a book out that I have not yet read that focuses specifically on white fragility. And she um, has great exercises and things that you could use with a group of people. This would be a great book discussion you know, for, for white folks, just to sit together and talk about your whiteness, which is really uncomfortable and something we need to do more of. Mm -hmm. So we'll link to her different books. I'm forgetting the title of the one that I've read. I don't know. I'm just blanking on it. Sorry. (laughs) But, um, but she's great. And again, has done some great work around like what, what the identity of being white means. Um, so definitely start with her as well. So we are going to put all of this and more (laughs) in our show. I'll be hard at work typing up and looking up links. (laughs) Yeah, if it takes us a little longer to get this one uploaded, (laughs) that's why, (laughs) because the show notes took two weeks. (laughs) but um that's it for this episode next episode we are gonna take it a little lighter i think we're gonna well who knows maybe (laughs) maybe we're gonna talk about aging (laughs) (laughs) that could go a number of routes but already we've been talking about serums and gray hair so (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) we'll go into more depth but that's a little sneak peek (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. all right so i'll talk to you then talk to you then Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 